Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings listeners, it's time for the August episode of Radio Astronomy. I'm news editor Ezzy Pearson and I'm joined on the podcast today by production editor Neil McKim. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to Keith Hayward about the Chinese space programme and telling you our top stargazing tip to see in this month's night sky. But now we're going to take a look at what we found out whilst putting together the August edition of the magazine. And in this month, I wrote a feature about the edge of the solar system, how we've explored it, how we know it's there and what shape it is. So what do we actually mean by the edge of the solar system? Um, That's quite a tricky question to answer, actually. The the sort of edge, as we know it, uh, basically starts at the orbit of Neptune at around 30 AU, um, where one AU is the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is about 150 million kilometres. And beyond the orbit of Neptune, there is a region known as the Kuiper Belt. So this is the home of a bunch of icy rocks, Um, that are the leftovers from planetary formation. You might have heard of at least one of them, and that is the now now dwarf planet, because it got demoted, um, Pluto, uh, which New Horizons flew past a couple of years ago. Um, There are other dwarf planets out there, places like Eris, but there's also lots of smaller objects um, that make up these Kuiper Belt objects, they're called, and the entire area is filled with these things. And these go out to about 50 AU. So that's 50 times the Earth-Sun distance. And the edge of the Kuiper Belt, that really marks the edge of of the planetary neighbourhood, of where there's things that are actually um, physical blocks of stuff. Then beyond the Kuiper Belt, you get to a region known as the heliosphere. Um, In reality, the heliosphere is actually a solar bubble which encompasses the entirety of the solar system. So that includes all the planets are inside the heliosphere. But when you get out beyond the planets, that's a region where it's pretty much that's all there is. The the heliosphere is a bubble filled with lots of particles um, that originate from the sun. It's the sun's solar wind and... It's kept in check by by the sun's magnetic field. That keeps it all in a nice, they think it's a sphere shape, um, but we'll get onto a bit more about what shapes it is in a bit later. Now, the edge of this heliosphere, uh, there is a region called the termination shock. And this is about 90 AU out. And this is the point where the solar wind drops to, to subsonic speeds. And The speed drops because you have the interstellar wind outside pushing in on this wind that's blowing out. The interstellar wind uh, is is the particles from other stars created in supernova that exists between all of the other stars and sort of threads its way throughout the galaxy. And that's pushing in on our solar system and it slows down the wind as the wind, the, the solar wind hits into it and slows it down. And that termination shock is the region where that happens. And actually where this termination shock lies breathes in and out with our solar cycle. Every 11 years, the sun has a period of activity. So it's incredibly active and then it dulls back down again and then it comes back up to be really active and lots of sunspots going on um, on an 11-year cycle. 
And the solar wind reflects that. It strengthens and it weakens and it strengthens. And where that termination shock is, we think, breathes in and out as the sun gets more or less active. Then you reach an area, finally, which is the heliopause. And that is the very edge of the heliosphere. That is the point at which our solar system particles stop and the interstellar part space takes over. It's related to where the sun's magnetic field loses out in its war against the the galactic magnetic field. The two sort of blend into each other. And so the sun can't keep that protective bubble anymore and the interstellar particles take over. And that lies at around about 120 AU. And this boundary, because you've got two magnetic fields coming together, it's incredibly chaotic. It's all mixed up. Um, There's lots of stuff going on. And that causes lots of bubbles um, and magnetic bubbles, not, you know, nobody's running around with like a a toy and a bubble blower or anything. Um, These bubbles of particles that are out there. And that's around about 120 AU. And then beyond that, you have interstellar space, which is about 40 times greater density than our own inner solar system. And that's pushing in on the heliosphere the whole time. Um, However, once you're in interstellar space, you are technically still inside the solar system for a good couple of light years because you are still under the sun's gravitational influence. Its magnetic influence has fallen away, but its gravitational influence is still pulling on you. It's still trying to make you come back in towards the rest of the solar system. And that doesn't fall away until about two light years away when you're halfway to our nearest star. And the very outskirts of our solar system, the region which is really at the edge of the sun's gravitational influence, there is a hypothesized region, a theoretical region that we've never actually managed to observe that we think is the home of lots more of these icy blocks that that came from the original formation of the solar system. And these go from about 2,000 to 200,000 AU. 200,000 AU, by the way, is three light years away. So this is a big, big area that's going around, and that's called the Oort cloud. And the reason why we think that's there is because uh, various astronomers have considered that Uh, there's long period comets, which are comets which come by through our solar system every hundred years or so. They have to have originated somewhere and the Oort cloud is where they think they come from. Short period comets mostly come from the Kuiper belt as far as we're aware, but these long period ones come from the Oort cloud. And so that, in a nutshell, is the basic structure of our solar system once you get out beyond Neptune. But how have we learnt about this? And I think Neil is going to tell us about that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, I think just to start, it's quite extraordinary that Pluto, which you mentioned, when that was discovered, and as a result of that being discovered, led people to theorise about the Kuiper Belt, and then a spacecraft has visited Pluto and now we're theorising mm. about the Oort cloud. Yeah. So it's just that kind of concept is amazing. It's it's going to take a while before anything gets to the Oort cloud. 2000 AU is very far away. It's taken, 
Well, as I'm sure you're about to go on to, it's taken Voyager quite a long time to even get a tenth of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, well, I'm looking at the three missions that are currently exploring the outer reaches of our solar system out beyond the eight planets. Um, first up is NASA's New Horizons, which we've touched on. This was launched in 2006 and is currently exploring the Kuiper Belt, the region containing the dwarf planets and the icy objects stretching out far beyond Neptune. While it's been in the belt, New Horizons has made some extraordinary discoveries. It flew past Pluto, as we just mentioned, in July 2015 and came as close as 13,000 kilometres, imaging Pluto's dramatic mountains and exploring its moons, including the irregular-shaped moon Hydra. There's an amazing flyover video available on the NASA website that shows the close-up view as the spacecraft soars over Pluto's surface. New Horizons came close to a second Kuiper Belt object in January 2019, the asteroid Arrow named after a Native American term for sky, which is the most distant object ever visited by a spacecraft at 6.6 billion kilometres from Earth. New Horizons came within three kilometres of the asteroid and again captured some incredible images, revealing its strange double-lobed shape up close. So why just two objects? Well, Alan Stern from the New Horizons team has indicated that although they found dozens of objects, only two have been within fuel reach. So they've, they're looking at new searches using ground-based telescopes to find a third flyby target. But New Horizons has also been using its long-range reconnaissance imager, or LORI for short, to examine several neighbouring Kuiper Belt objects, and these are are way too distant to observe from Earth, but with LORI, New Horizons can determine light curves, rotational periods, and it's hoped that the mission will look for Kuiper Belt objects with moons. By measuring the distribution of dust in the Kuiper Belt and seeing when the dust levels fall away, scientists think this will be an indication of when New Horizons has reached the Kuiper Belt's end, and they're expecting it to do so in 2027. Researchers are already queuing up to request time for using the New Horizons spacecraft for future research when it reaches the heliosphere. So moving out further to the heliosphere itself, the bubble of gas generated by the solar wind which surrounds the solar system that's kept in place by the sun's magnetic field, we come to NASA's IBEX mission. Since 2008, the Earth-orbiting IBEX, which stands for Interstellar Boundary Explorer, has been imaging the outer reaches of the heliosphere, looking at the area where the magnetic field of the Sun meets up with the Milky Way. IBEX has investigated neutral atoms. These are the particles which originated in the heliosphere, but which have interacted with the galactic magnetic field and been scattered backwards. And this study into neutral atoms led to the discovery in 2009 of the IBEX ribbon, a mysterious structure that is believed to have something to do with the heliosphere's interaction with the interstellar magnetic field. The ribbon has been observed getting dimmer over time, which may be caused by changing solar winds. Meanwhile, two spacecraft have been out in the heliosphere. 
Voyager 1 and 2, which have been collecting data that's helping scientists to construct a 3D map of the region, showing the various features they've passed. Voyager 1 began its exit of the heliosphere in 2004 when it passed through the termination shock, which we mentioned earlier, which is the boundary of the sun's magnetic field where the solar wind meets the interstellar medium and slows down. This boundary appears to move around with solar activity. So when Voyager 1 passed through, it was 94 AU from the sun. But when Voyager 2 passed through in 2007, it was 84 AU, indicating that the shape of the heliosphere is way more complicated than originally thought. Scientists have discovered that the space beyond the termination shock is twisting as it interacts with the galactic field before finally crossing the edge of the heliosphere known as the heliopause, the point interstellar space begins. Both voyages are now journeying through the area where the interstellar medium and the solar wind meet. It's hoped that their power supplies will last long enough to get into calmer regions where the magnetic field becomes more representative of the Milky Way. But leaving our solar system's influence isn't going to happen soon. It would take the voyagers are staggering 40,000 years before they escape the sun's gravitational influence and officially leave our solar system. And current estimates put their functioning lifespan as continuing for another five years or so. But there is something wonderful about them being the most distant objects that humans have ever put into space and the fact that they will continue to journey ever outwards, albeit silently. Mm. I do, it's that when you think that there's something that, We've sent out back in the 70s, I think 1977, these two Voyager launched. And now they're millions and millions and millions of miles away from home. Um, billions, in fact. Uh, yeah, it kind of, it makes you feel both small and very big at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. As, as, like we're a tiny little human race on this one tiny little planet, but we've managed to to get out there and 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 send something out into the deep solar system but yeah there was one of the things that you touched on there which was the 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 shape of the solar system which is something that is is far more complicated as i've learned in the last couple of months it's far more complicated than people used to think um originally people used to think that as the uh solar system moved through the galaxy it's it's that solar bubble sort of swept out behind it with a tail like a comet and as we get as we actually get things out there into that area of, of space, we're seeing actually it's probably a bit more complicated than that. Um, there's various different models they're called now. Um, so basically people have taken what we know about it, shoved it into a computer and seen what can make it fit um, to, to try and work out what shape the, the solar system might be. Um, and it's gone from it's a sphere to it might be a bit more like a crescent to now it is a pudgy croissant. Um, (laughs) I think is one of the most recent ideas. Um, But but the true answer is is that until we get, you know, more than two things out there, um, we probably won't know. Also, the quite distressing thing is we do have a a third spacecraft which is going out there, which is the the New Horizon, Um, but it probably won't last until it gets to the heliopause. Um, It's battery. It's also run on nuclear power, and that probably... It'll get to pass the termination shock, but 
it'll likely have run out by the time it crosses the heliopause, which is is slightly sad. It would have been nice to have another, you know, like a third data point um, about what's out there in the um, outskirts of the solar system. But who knows? Another, you know... Well, I was about to say in a couple of years from now, it won't be, it'll be like another 30 years from now, <laughs> they might be sending out another mission um, to go and explore there. Yeah, I guess it will just be another silent drifter, won't it, kind of joining the mm. joining the voyages. Yeah, yeah. the voyages and the pioneers. Um, they unfortunately, they, they were the very first sort of long-distance probes that, that humanity sent out Um Voyager has since overtaken them and they ran out of power long before they got to, to these kinds of outer regions. But they are also drifting out there. I think also what you're saying about the um, Voyagers was what's what's so incredible about them is that every now and again they've been on TV kind of through the through the years, like when mm. they've when they've reached Jupiter or you know, kind of yeah. going out and then now they're out in these really remote areas. It's just fantastic. It's yeah, they occasionally crop up and it's like, we're still here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've crossed another landmark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um there's a there's a common joke that the the voyagers have left the solar system about half a dozen times. Um when really all they've been doing is is crossing another sort of signpost on the outskirts. Um but they are they are currently still in the solar system, but in interstellar space, I believe is the official line. Now, back to the inner solar system, and one planet is about to become a lot busier. This month, uh, July, three missions are due to head off towards Mars. Along with NASA's Perseverance rover and the Hope Orbiter from the United Arab Emirates, the Chinese Space Agency are planning on sending their first ever mission to the surface of another planet, the Tianwen rover. The Chinese Space Agency have always been very secretive about their goals. And so today I'm talking to Keith Hayward, a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society, about the history of China in space and what the nation hopes to achieve. So, Keith, uh, China are making great strides into the field of planetary exploration in recent years. Um, What were their reasons for for going into this arena? some extent you have to backtrack a little bit and you have to get into a, a, a more murky world than, than the realms of planetary exploration the chinese have, have long been interested in space um technology uh, as many of the powers that went before them because it's a, it's a it's a major military tool but i think we we don't have to spool back into the to the early days of, of, of chinese space activities I think the turning point was very much in the, the late 1990s when, uh, when the Chinese began to appreciate the importance of what the Americans came to call the revolution in military affairs. Now, that was best exemplified by the importance that space had in the Second Gulf War. Now, space had always had this military dimension. The you know, first rockets were military. The first um, orbital satellites were put into into put into into orbit by um, by um, ICBMs or at least prototype ICBMs, and all of that stuff. Reconnaissance satellites were amongst the first things up there. Communication satellites were were, were in, in initially uh, very much uh, the realm of the military. But it all came together in the late 1990s when the Americans began to use space as an important part of their military infrastructure. Now, the Chinese at that stage were relatively weak militarily. 
technologically beginning to show promise, but they're strategists. The, the, the guys in the, in, in the people, in the People's Revolutionary Army began to look at the, or began to identify the importance of space infrastructure. Now that has several dimensions. Communications, as I said before, then it became reconnaissance, but preeminently it was global positioning, GPS as the Americans called it. So all of this began to be wrapped into to Chinese defense policy strategy, all the rest of it. Now, we can pursue that further if you like. But when you come to it, of course, all that technology, the launchers, the satellites, the miniaturization of the, of the componentry that goes into the satellite, all of that stuff is also the essence of space exploratory um, vehicles. And certainly when you start thinking about what you can do with, uh, uh, with remote sensing satellites, what you can do with robotics. Now, there's another convergent technology. If you put space technology and robotics together, you get yourself a, a very potent tool for planetary exploration, for putting landers on the moon, putting landers on Mars, as the, as the Chinese are, are proposing to do very shortly. All of that is in a sense, a seamless web of technology. Now, that in itself produces a, a beautiful scientific ambiance. It's something you can do. It's something, incidentally, the UK is extremely good at, by the way. So, you know, it's one thing we've done very, very well in, in the space sector. But it also, it also demonstrates capability. And I think, to some extent, we're also dealing here with um, what many analysts call soft power, that the Chinese recognize that space and space spectaculars are a wonderful way of demonstrating the superiority of one's national abilities in a whole raft of complex, challenging arenas. So that's in the sense where it all comes together, a military political origin, origin now a political origin, origin, but with a beautiful scientific, you could almost say scientific spin-off. It's going to produce some, some very useful, uh, very useful returns. And... How separate are the the kind of military sides of um, China's space plans and their more scientific sides, like planetary exploration? Difficult to say, given given the way the Chinese state is organised. And they certainly will have a, a distinct military space program, and the administrators of the of the Chinese space activities on the civil side will also have a, a hierarchy. But it's it's almost certainly that somewhere in that structure there will be a convert, there will be a commonality of personnel or, or a reporting structure that takes you into the politico military um, hierarchy. But for all intents and purposes, the, the the Chinese scientific side of space will have its own budget, will have its own decision making. It will obviously be able to tap a, a commonality of expertise across the whole of the of the Chinese space industry. And of course, when you start talking about putting, building these things, constructing these things, you, 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 you don't make much of a distinction between the military and the civil side of Chinese space. And now, when you compare sort of how China are conducting their affairs, they are yeah. a lot more secretive than compared to something like NASA or the European Space Agency. Um, is there a reason behind that? Well, it's uh, you could say you know without being conspiratorial, it, it, it again it, it, it reflects the um, the politicisation and the militarisation of Chinese space activity. So, it's, to some extent, 
that's the way it will be. Just as the, in the old days of the Soviet Union, there was a, a, a clear, you know, sorry, an indi- a very distinct blurring of relationships between the civil and the military activity. Uh, and I think also that it's, it's almost natural to the Chinese state. And I don't, again, I don't want to be conspiratorial about uh, the way that President Xi runs his country, but it, 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 it's, it's a one with, the, with, with Chinese experience across the board. You, you have to intuit what is happening in its aerospace sector, for example. You have to in, you read between the lines even in the development of their airliners. So you, 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 you are inevitably going to find some, some dark areas and, and areas where it, it comes down to um, inspired guesswork, inspired uh, examination of what the Chinese are up to, certainly when it comes to um, separating motivates, motives out of, their, their, out, of their, out of their policy. And despite this secrecy, uh, how involved are China on the international level um, with uh, other global partners? Well, they'll be part. Of, they'll be part of uh, of most of most of the recognised international bodies. I mean, to some extent, that too is a reflection of soft power. Um, they all they also see space as very much part of the Belt and Road Initiative by offering packages in in commercial space sectors to to prospective to prospective collaborators to prospective um, investors in Belt and Road. So it it becomes part and parcel of that politico-economic strategy, they will also join in the international organizations such as the International Telegraphic Telecommunications Union that allocates uh, wavelengths and all of that stuff. That being said, of course, they had a reputation of breaking international norms. I mean, one occasion they, they, did, they, 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 they had a, launched a, a test of an anti-satellite missile which broke up a, a target in lower Earth orbit, which of course it contributed mightily to the to space junk, which um, which produced a sort which produced a, a huge amount of international opprobrium hitting the uh, hitting the Chinese for deliberately making um, more mess in the in that critical orbit. So they they are sensitive, but I suspect if push comes to shove, they're not going to let the United Nations or an international body get in their way. Mm. Uh, you mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative. Could you just explain yeah. what that is? The Belt and Road Initiative, it's, it, 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 it conjures up images of the Great Silk Road, the trade routes between China, Cathay, and, and Western Europe in Marco Polo's day. But what it is, in a sense, it's a, it's a loose initiative that will use infrastructure like rail. I mean, to some extent, the, 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 the train that trundles from, from, from China through to, to, to Paris is part of the Belt and Road Initiative. But it's much more of a, a, a loose political and economic um, relationship between China and particularly countries um, in what used to be called the Third World, Africa and, and, South, and the rest of Southeast Asia. It gives them a, a, a way in of, of, of winning um, political influence through economic and uh, economic investment. So this summer, uh, China are planning on sending their first Martian rover, um, Tianwen One. And back in 2013, um, they landed on the moon um, with yep. Chang'e Three, and later with Chang'e Four on the far side. Mm-hmm. So, what are their ultimate goals in terms of planetary exploration? Well, I mean, it, it, to some extent, this is a, this is a well a well can you say well trodden path? Well, it's a, certainly a well trodden space route is to is to target the near the near planet the near the near um, say planet, moon is not a planet the, the near Earth object the moon it's a, it's everybody goes for the moon with the, Indi- the Indians have had a go at it the, 
Um, I think the Europeans have, I think, put stuff on. I can't really recall how much. Of course, the Americans are still the only people to have put human beings mm-hmm. onto um, onto the moon. So, in a sense, that's a, an obvious target. Mars is the is the is the most interesting of the near planetary neighbours. Um, Venus, to some extent, is still a mysterious planet. It's got certain issues that make it very difficult to actually plonk something on the on its surface and have it rolling around. But Mars, in a sense, is a, is, a, is regarded as a cold desert world, which is more amenable, as we've seen already, um, to putting a robotic instrument package onto the surface and have it trundle around at, at, at leisure. And so to some extent, it's, 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 the, the targets and the strategies are pretty well um, obvious. That's the way you'd go. I mean, backing up behind the moon, behind the, the Mars lander, is a putative um, Chinese plan to put Chinese um, humans, human Chinese, onto the moon at some stage in the 2020s. A very ambitious project. Even, even the, I suspect the, the Americans will find it something of a challenge um, to repeat um, the glories of Apollo. But it's it, to some extent you're, you're dealing here with um, well, it's the obvious thing to do. I mean, you, imaginative ones like Elisa, I think, still one of the greatest spectaculars was to put a, a, a lander on an astro, on, a, on a comet. Uh, it was was really something absolutely incredible. But it all together demonstrates what you can do. Because these are, uh, I'm not an engineer, but I fully appreciate just how difficult and challenging this stuff is. And I think to pull it off, it, it really is the 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 pinnacle of of, uh, 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 of demonstration of a capability and a competence. You you touched on there that it's a demonstration of how capable yeah. China are. How do they measure up with the other big space players such as NASA and the European Space Agency? Technically, I think they're they're they're, they're in there. Um, it, it's difficult to make a judgment. Again, not being an engineer, I, I don't know what the quality of the uh, of the Mars lander is likely to be. But it's not going to be far away from certainly that of the European capabilities. I mean, they put a lot of time and effort and money into the into the exercise. So, and so far, they've been pretty pretty well successful in in achieving their objectives. But I, I would I would certainly rate them up there, if not superior. They're certainly very very good. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Keith. That has been absolutely fascinating. You're welcome. That was Keith Haywood, a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Now it's time for our stargazing tip of the month. August sees one of the most prolific meteor showers, the Persids, return for another year. This year, the peak of the shower crosses over two nights, the night of the 11th to the 12th, and the following night of the 12th to the 13th of August. So there's double the chance of the weather cooperating and giving you a nice clear sky. The best time to observe is between 1am and 3am, which could be a little late for younger astronomers, but it could make an exciting summer holiday adventure. To get them ready, try and encourage an early sleep before the morning watch and make things comfortable. Make sure you pick a spot away from any direct sources of light, set up a sleeping bag or a sun lounger and have a hot drink at the ready. Then when the time is right, get the kids up, settle down and look up at the sky. After a few minutes, your eyes will adapt to the darkness. Keep looking up and eventually you'll see a meteor trailing across the sky. It's something you and your children won't forget for a long time. So that's it from us this month. 
You can find out more about the Perseids and exploring the edge of the solar system in the August issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we will also teach you how to transform your astrophotography using processing software, hear what the Royal Astronomical Society is doing to help support black, Asian and other minority ethnic astronomers, and getting an update on the star Betelgeuse. That's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. 